0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. We talk with a woman who rescued 52 dogs from a home near Brantford. The fourth wave of the pandemic is slowing down. Facebook is developing a platform for kids. Restaurants and small businesses left out of Ontario's expanded capacity limits. Another bad home reno story. And the author of Year of the Rocket joins us to talk about the wildest year in the CFL. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now.
1: Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with
0: Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The uh, fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic appears to have leveled off across Canada. We're seeing numbers here in Ontario, um, monthly case counts or daily case counts uh, under 600. Uh, you know, Gone are the days, and thankfully so, of well over 1,000, well over 2, well over 3, well over 4,000s. Um, happily, those go- those days are gone, and hopefully, never again will we see that kind of caseload on a daily basis. Given the optimism we all have, um, Public Health Agency of Canada still warning that public health measures need to be maintained to keep COVID cases at bay, and that includes a directive from Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Teresa Tam.
2: Despite the very real challenges being faced at the height of the current curve, current wave, the efforts we've made give us reason for optimism. But we must remain mindful of the <clears throat> need for continued caution in the months ahead.
0: Dr. Ahmad Faras Khalid is a health policy expert and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Dr. Khalid. How are you today? Good morning.
3: Thanks for having me. appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on. I I guess we should, are we allowed to be excited knowing that the fourth wave is on the decline, or should we be a little pessimistic that, you know, some doom and gloom is still on the horizon?
3: I think we all deserve a bit of excitement after so long of being under lockdown strict measures. So I think this news tells us that the vaccine has been highly protective, even in the face of Delta variant. Uh, I mean, I always said this before, Rick, like I think that we can't imagine a life without COVID. So COVID will always be around, it's just that there will be times when it will be rough and we have to go into stricter measures and there will be times like today where we can celebrate the Delta variant has not taken a toll on our health system as we we, we expected earlier in the summer and that, you know, in the foreseeable future, we can see booster restrictions as we move forward.
0: It wasn't too long ago, maybe a couple months or a few weeks, that we were told that the fourth wave could be the worst and that the worst mm-hmm. of it would hit in mid-October. So what has changed?
3: Well, what has changed is that the number of people who are getting vaccinated in Canada is higher. Uh, the fact that Alberta has went into a stricter restriction earlier in the summer indicated to us that the uh, the, the measures had been working. So I think what we've done is that we put preventative measures early on. We knew that there might be a really bad outcome from the fourth wave, and we quickly acted in putting measures across the country, whether it's encouraging people to continue the intervention, or in the case of Alberta, where we were worried about an increase in the spread of cases, there were stricter measures being put in place. And we have to remind the public that the percentage of population in Canada now are fully vaccinated is about 71 percent so there is still room for improvement we still want to see more people vaccinated across the country but i think that high level of protection does provide us a bit of a leeway in terms of our strict measures in place
0: certainly the vaccine numbers have helped vaccine mandates go along with that and we're going to see more and more Mm -hmm. i think uh, employees being basically forced into vaccination if they want to keep their jobs in many cases that's going to help as well right
3: Absolutely, and I think that's part of the reason why the federal government has been very adamant about it and made very strong stand on and on ensuring that or mandating that federal employees do must be vaccinated. I think it's one step closer to getting that percentage of number of people to 80 percent at least of the population being vaccinated. I think I think you'll always have a subset of our population who are a might not be eligible because of any medical reasons to get the vaccine, but then you're also going to have a subset of the population who don't necessarily believe in in the need to get the vaccine. And so I think by the government taking a strong stand on this, it's signaling the public that if you are on the fence, you should get vaccinated.
0: Dr. Ahmad Faras Khalid is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Zamprin with you as well. Uh, We're chatting about the declining numbers that we're seeing throughout the fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. On Saturday, a new capacity limit came into effect here in Ontario where sporting events, concerts, cinemas, theaters can expand to 100% capacity. You still need proof of vaccination to get into these venues. Uh, is there any tinge of worry in your mind about this uh, new uh, expanded capacity?
3: Yeah, I think the worry—the worry here is that as we're getting to colder temperatures, more and more of us will be hanging out indoors, right, in in large group settings. So there is a slight concern that. Uh, you know, I, I like the fact that we are expanding capacities. I think that we, uh, we're we heading towards the right direction. You know, we can't always be in a lockdown state. Everybody's been asking for loser restrictions, whether it's businesses or just individuals. But we have to keep in mind that as colder temperatures happen and more of us hang out indoors, that the, the expectant rise in numbers of COVID-19 might happen again, which means that capacity limits might change. So as long as we're okay with that, that this idea of, you know, rise and fall of the numbers and that we will accommodate based on the numbers we have, I think we're actually going to be having a much more effective strategy this time around. And by that I mean is that, you know, if you recall, at the beginning of the height of the pandemic, we went to severe strict restrictions. I don't think we're going to see that day come again. I think what we're going to see is exactly this scenario playing out, which is that the more of us that get vaccinated, we, and depending on the case numbers, we're going to see a rise and fall of restrictions and how they are enacted.
0: So to uh, tomorrow night, the Maple Leafs are going to play their first home game in front of a capacity crowd since March of 2019. Would you mm-hmm. be comfortable in that atmosphere? Well,
3: I think that if most people are, are, are fully vaccinated and wearing a face mask. I mean, I tend to continue to wear face masks every chance I can everywhere uh, that I'm out. I think that's important. I think that you know the the safe practice hygiene have gotten us very very far in this pandemic you know when we said early in the pandemic that you know a uh, head washing and a head sanitizer are wearing a mask and mask and keeping social distancing work the evidence has not changed at that the evidence is still very clear that those interventions do reduce the risk of COVID 19 if you're getting it and and the added benefit to all of this is that the majority of us are double vaccinated so we do have two layer of protection there. I urge the public to exercise their own level of caution as they are out uh, And you know, I think for the most part, it seems like Ontarians understand that point. They understand the need to keep uh, wearing face masks and practicing safe time hygiene.
0: Well, last question for you in terms of daily case sure. counts and the severity of the virus, what should we expect in the next few weeks and months?
3: I think we will, what we're gonna see is a rise and fall of numbers. Uh, Until they get to alarming levels, we're probably going to continue easing out restrictions. Uh, and the more people who are getting vaccinated with the new mandates by the federal government on, uh, you know, employees getting vaccinated, we're going to just see a rise in numbers of vaccination in our population. And so uh, with the third booster shot coming in at some point for the rest of the population, I think it's going to be more and more looser restrictions as we move forward.
0: Dr. Khaled, I know you're a really busy individual. I really appreciate you taking some time out to, to uh, uh, share some information with our listeners who uh, I'm sure will take that uh, to hearts. Thanks again for your time
3: to you. Always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Dr. Ahmad Faras Khalid, health policy experts chiming in on the declining numbers of the fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML.
0: We can't change human nature. We always see bad things online. We can do everything we can to try and reduce and mitigate them. That is Facebook's Vice President of Global Affairs, Nick Clegg, saying that the company is working to make the service safer and less capable of spreading misleading content. Now, the social media giant has come under fire after a former employee went public with concerns that the website is stoking needless division amongst the general public and putting profits ahead of people. And Clegg says Facebook is taking this criticism seriously, although when you hear from CEO Mark Zuckerberg, you may not think that because he says the company has been unfairly mischaracterized. So which is it, mischaracterized or taking this criticism seriously? Here to shine a light on this is Amy Morrison, associate professor at the University of Waterloo, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Uh, Your reaction to uh, Facebook's, I I guess, new venture in putting in new controls for kids on uh, their platforms in light of the whistleblower report. What's your reaction to that?
4: Well, my reaction to that is the whistleblower reports have revealed the reason that Facebook is so interested in starting um, services for younger users. And that's because it is shedding North American users um, who are in its target demographic, the sort of advertiser-desired 18 to 35 or 18 to 50-year-old demographic. Those people are leaving Facebook, and, and Facebook is always looking for new ways to increase its user base. And in fact, the phrase leverage the play date occurred in some of its internal research, the idea there being that if they could only attract users that were younger than the teenagers who already think that Facebook isn't cool, then Facebook would continue to grow. So when you're starting from that premise, I think that the the agents that Facebook needs to keep children safe from is, in fact,
0: Facebook itself. <laughs> well said. Uh, it's apparently introducing several features, including uh, prompting teens to take a break while using Instagram, easier said than done. Should parents be worried uh, by this approach by Facebook? I
4: think that... Um, people need to realize, parents, everyone needs to realize that the entire value proposition of Facebook is that it sells user attention to advertisers. Now, there's nothing nefarious in that. That's what broadcast television does. That's what radio stations do, right? People listen, then advertisements are served. So what Facebook innovates in is that it um, uses user-generated content to draw users' attention. So there's no quality control over the content. Um, And the algorithms in Facebook tend to prioritize um, you seeing content that other people have been very interested in. And what makes people most interested is being angry or being scared. And so that's the kind of content we tend to see more and more and more and more of. Um, And the reason that works is that fear and anger are primal emotions. They motivate us to action. So if these sites are continuously putting things in front of us that make us anxious or angry or scared, and then tells us to just take a break for a few minutes, those two forces are working in opposition to one another.
0: So really, I mean, yeah, they're they're trying to get kids to get onto the platform, get addicted to the platform, and then they're just going to be able to make more money by selling more eyeballs to their advertisers.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. The idea here is that Facebook creates Um, a user experience that is as much as possible designed to make you never want to leave, right? Um, And then it blames you for not taking breaks from it.
0: So is this just the start? Are we expecting more changes, more uh, tweaks from Facebook?
4: I think that what we're going to see is a bigger discussion about how these algorithms actually work. So it's not necessary to think like, oh, Facebook is evil. Facebook is deliberately putting bad information in front of us. Facebook is deliberately making us angry. Um, in the beginning, the algorithms that, that set the content in your newsfeed were designed to, to fix a real problem. And the real problem was we were getting too many posts from people we followed that we weren't actually interested in. The site was getting frustrating and boring and, and people were leaving it. Um, and so the algorithm was like, we just want to show you more of what you're interested in, but it turns out we're mostly interested in things that terrify us. Um, and make us really angry. So um, the algorithm was never designed to turn out the way that it did. It was just designed to produce engagement. And now that we know the link between engagement and outrage, I think that there's some structural fixes that, that need to be made. It's not about teaching users how to be more critical necessarily. It is about finding tweaks to the algorithm such that it stops always surfacing this specific type of highly engaging content.
0: Our guest is Amy Morrison, associate professor at the University of Waterloo. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, I think a lot of the push is to get Facebook to reveal its algorithm uh, map, I guess, if you will, because that remains very secretive.
4: It does. It does. And a lot of what the, the information that we have now about precisely um, what the outcomes are of how this algorithm works were, of course, produced by leaks, right? So Facebook has a very strong internal research team that has very good access to all of Facebook's internal information and data and programming and user information. But all of that, since Facebook is a private company, is hidden from policymakers and researchers. So normally we have to take Facebook's word about what's happening there, and it's these documents um, that have been revealed and shared by Frances Haugen that have given us a clearer picture of just exactly how the algorithm is implicated in producing all of these terrible social outcomes that we're really familiar with
0: we got less than a minute. Do you expect Ottawa, Washington, or even the EU to get Facebook to reveal that map?
4: Well, increasingly, I think we're looking at a situation where regulation is is going to happen. It seemed that um, Haugen's appearance before Congress had a lot more serious and informed questioning from lawmakers than we've tended to see in the past so i think our lawmakers are getting a little bit more sophisticated in their understanding of social media and that's going to lead to regulation
0: yeah that's a good thing amy really appreciate the time today
4: thank you so much
0: amy morrison associate professor at the university of waterloo joining us here to chat about facebook and uh, their plans for a kids platform basically at the end of the day kids we want you on facebook take a break from time to time (laughs) yeah like they're gonna do that
1: serving up a healthy dose of news traffic and engaging opinion this is good morning hamilton with rick zamperin on 900 chml
0: saturday was a big day in the province of ontario as uh, restrictions uh, due to COVID 19 continued to be relaxed so as of saturday cinemas Uh, Theaters, concert halls, spectator sports venues like Tim Hortons Field, First Ontario Center, Scotiabank Arena, uh, even car and horse race tracks were allowed to open at full capacity. It started at 50 percent, went to 75 percent, and now they're at 100 percent capacity, which means everybody in their uncle can go to a Ticats game and uh, not be physically distanced, of course, if you're sitting side by side. So that has some, you know, celebrating, but others, not so much, because those capacity limits don't apply to places like gyms and restaurants. Here to chat about it is Julie Kowinski. She is the CFIB Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Julie. Hi, Julie, do we have you? Hello. Hi, good morning. How are you?
2: I'm doing well, Rick. Sorry about that. We, I think there was a delay in getting me on, but I'm here and happy to be here on a Tuesday.
0: Excellent. How frustrating is this?
2: Uh, I have to tell you, over the weekend, members reached out to us. So this would be businesses like restaurants, gyms, event venues, martial arts studios, yoga studios, dance studios, any number of these businesses that didn't benefit from this announcement. So essentially, Rick, it comes down to a fairness thing. And that's why businesses get so upset, small businesses, with announcements like these. So first of all, it was done under the cover of a late Friday afternoon before a long weekend. That has come to be traditionally known as a dump day at Queen's Park. So no one is around to publicly explain their decision or answer questions, because they likely know there will be a backlash from certain stakeholders. So in this case, what you're seeing is, as you illustrated in your intro, a place like Scotiabank Arena, they're going to be allowed full capacity. That's 19,800 people without physical distancing rules. Meanwhile, gyms yoga and dance studios and bowling alleys will be limited to 50 percent capacity and restaurants and meeting and event spaces will still have to follow physical distancing rules how is that fair you know what it reminds our members of rick and i hate to say this This is a sequel to last year's saga, where the Ontario government picked Walmart and Costco over small businesses last holiday season. They permitted them, the big box stores, to sell anything to everyone in store, while small retailers were limited to curbside pickup and delivery. How is this fair? How does it make sense?
0: Uh, It doesn't make any sense. In fact, there's going to be 19,000-plus at Scotiabank Arena tomorrow night for the Leafs' uh, season opener. And uh, they're not going to be sitting quietly at a dinner table enjoying a meal. They're going to be screaming, booing. Uh, Many will be told to wear masks. Many will not be wearing their masks. It's a a different uh, playing field.
2: Absolutely. And how do you enforce that? How do you expect that to be enforced? Meanwhile, if you're in a gym or a bowling alley or a dance studio or a restaurant or a meeting or event venue, as the owner, you're afraid to be closed again. You don't want that to happen. So you're looking at your business basically looking at like a hawk to make sure everybody's following the rules. And it's a lot easier because you've got a lot less real estate than a giant sporting venue.
0: Yeah. And uh, further to your Friday uh, dump um, uh, scenario, it is true. And it was the Friday in in advance of a long weekend as well, which is doubly worse. But uh, Julie, we'll have to leave it there. Hopefully these capacity limits on restaurants and gyms and other similar places will be lifted soon because they should be by now. Appreciate the time today.
2: You've got to level the playing field.
0: Thanks, Rick. Very much so. Julie Kowinski, CFIB Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario.
1: This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML.
0: We're talking about dogs being rescued from a home near Brantford over the weekend. This is an incredible story. Nearly 50 dogs. There were some cats, even a turtle, that were rescued from a home near Brantford on uh, October the 2nd. And these animals were found after a man living in this home was taken to the hospital and uh, later was pronounced dead in a hospital. It's a sens- sensational story. Uh, Cassia Bryden is the founder of Sato Saved End of the Line Dog Rescue and Rehabilitation and was the person who rescued the dogs from this home and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Cassia, good morning.
5: Good morning. How are you?
0: Not too bad. Um, tell us what happened here.
5: Um, so I work for Hillside Kennels Animal Control, which is located in Kip, Ontario. Um, I do animal control for quite a few areas. Um, I'm their um, weekend part-time employee. Um, I received a, a call from the OPP uh, quite early in the morning hours um, for some animals that were in distress. Um, they explained that they were taking somebody to the hospital and that they needed somebody on scene. Um, obviously, I was not prepared for what I was about to walk into. Um, but when I got there, we realized that there was quite um, a need for help for these this family. Um, they'd been looking for help for a while, but just weren't able to secure their proper resources, and obviously the situation spiraled quite quickly out of control. Um, there was 52 dogs in the home, and four cats and a
0: turtle. How were they doing? Obviously, probably not very good. Uh,
5: no, they weren't. So, um, obviously, there was a number of, of animals in the home that were um, needing medical care immediately. Um, A lot of them had fleas and um, were chewing themselves for a number of years, so they're missing hair on half their bodies. Basically, anywhere their mouths can reach, they've got no hair. Um, There's a number of them that are quite fearful and timid. Some of them still haven't quite gotten around to coming towards us or letting us pet them. Um, A number of them have been attacked by other dogs over and over again for years so they're just very nervous and standoffish Um, but i am hopeful that um, over time that a lot of these dogs will be able to be rehabilitated Um, we've broken them down into a number of rescues across ontario so that they can all get one-on-one rehabilitation and and care and and love and bedding and everything that they need
0: so i'm picturing you entering this home and i'm not sure what your expectations were but I, i can probably guarantee you weren't expecting 52 dogs
5: No, so the homeowner, um, obviously, there was um, some mental health issues. Um, Her husband passed away in the home um, from underlying issues with his health, um, not related to the dogs. Um, But it's very sad because they had been alone and a little bit um, distraught from their family, so they didn't have anybody really to help or talk to. And when I got there, um, the owner did express how many were in the home and that she would help me get them out and was willing to surrender them. Um, but obviously, when you start catching them and you are going into these conditions, um, the dogs just kept coming out and coming out. And it was like, oh, my goodness, like, this is just crazy. How did all these dogs fit in this tiny little house?
0: <laughs> so where did you put them all? I mean, did reinforcements have to be uh, called in? Like, How did you get all these dogs out?
5: So the first night I took four out of the home um, and brought them back to my place of employment on um, the kennel at Hillside. And um, then I made a plan um, to go back and get some more dogs the, night, the next night. I got another 13 out that night. Me and my husband loaded them into a truck and a van and took them back. And then the following day, I had um, pet save from Sudbury come down with a trailer. Uh, we loaded 31 dogs in that trailer, and they went to Sudbury. Um, two of those dogs immediately went to my friend Heather, who um, she actually came down from Sudbury and helped me unload and, and load all these dogs. Um, She was right there. As soon as I got the dogs out of the house, she was at the bottom of those stairs helping me carry those dogs. So she was really helpful. Um, And then those 29 dogs went to Pet Save, who were then split up into two more groups. Um, Some went to Montreal. Another group went to North Bay. Um, So some of the worst dogs have gone to some of the more specialized rehabilitation rescues out toward Quebec, Um, people who are willing to put, you know, a little bit more time into letting these dogs decompress and come out of their shells. And um, it's quite its quite the group effort for sure.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. Cassia Bryden is our guest. She's the founder of Sato Saved End of the Line Dog Rescue and Rehabilitation, the person who rescued 52 dogs from a home in Burford. That's near Branford. Um, were any of the pets uh, needing uh, to be euthanized at all?
5: So um, there was three deceased dogs found in the home. Um, unfortunately, we were not able to save those dogs. Um, There is four dogs right now that are uh, questionable temperaments, um, but it just hasn't been enough time for us to for sure know. Um, They are showing some signs of of human aggression, uh, mostly fear-based. So obviously with those types of um, behaviors, we have to slow down and give them time to come around in hopes that, you know, in a few weeks they will. Uh, But it's not out of the question. Obviously, with 52 dogs, there is a chance that some of these dogs aren't going to be able to be rehabilitated. And I am a realistic person. Um, But right now, I am hopeful that at least 50, um, 48 of them will be adoptable um, in time and will find forever.
0: What does that rehab process look like and how long uh, until you find out whether the dog is rehabilitative uh, or not?
5: So, I mean, for some of these dogs, the rehabilitation process is mostly just getting their skin conditions under control, showing them that people are to be trusted, getting them used to walking on a leash, um, some house training and crate training so that they're manageable for people who want to adopt them without them completely shutting down. But some of the dogs need a little bit more um, confidence boosting. Um, They basically just need to learn how to dog. They've been in this house and never gone outside for three or four years so it's almost like somebody coming out of um, like a detention center you know they get out of there and they have no idea what's going on in the world so they've basically got to be treated like eight week old puppies even though they're three-year-old dogs Um, so those ones are going to take a lot of dedicated fosters and time and when those ones are ready we'll have to look for special people to kind of take them on and continue their rehab when they get adopted.
0: We've got about a, uh, a minute left. Did did the system fail these dogs? I mean, how does someone get 52 dogs?
5: I would say that the system absolutely failed these dogs and this family. Um, mental health is a big issue, but when you run into a pandemic like this coronavirus and a lot of families are, you know, not visiting each other and not calling each other as much as they should. And I think that um, the family doesn't live close, That you know, their kids are a little bit farther away from them and they just hadn't checked in. And time gets away from us sometimes so if anybody can take anything away from this story it's that call your loved ones and check in on them and make sure they're doing okay and if they need help help them find the resources because sometimes people just need that little bit of help and without it these situations can get so badly out of control and i know i know in my heart that even though all of this is so so upsetting and so wrong that the homeowners did not intend for it to get this bad they actually wanted to help dogs and obviously it, it spiraled into a not helping situation.
0: Cassie, really appreciate the time. Thanks for sharing uh, the story and hopefully these dogs find uh, their forever home.
5: Yeah, thank you so much for um, for getting a little bit of publicity out there and, and just raising that awareness. I really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Cassia Bryden is the founder of Sato Saved End of the Line Dog Rescue and Rehabilitation and the person who rescued 52 dogs from a home near Branford. <laughs>
1: Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Riggs Amperin on 900 CHML.
0: Interesting story out of Waterloo. Have you ever done a home rental project? Have you and the contractor gotten along? Has everything worked out smoothly? That's not always the case. And for a Waterloo family, it was nearly disastrous. They were planning a pretty extensive addition to their home in Waterloo 375 thousand dollar addition so we're not this is not chump change we're talking about so they found a contractor uh you know a, agreed to the project at the last minute though the price went up from the contractor by about fifty four thousand dollars and so the homeowners are like what's going on here and they didn't know where the increase is coming from so they said, you know what, it's, it's gotten a little too expensive. You know, our budget is blown up here. we got to cancel this project. And that cancellation basically came less than a month before this project was about to begin. And uh, the contractor said, uh, all right, we're not going forward. They, they uh, looked at scheduling conflicts. Um, in addition to that, the family was told that they weren't going to get their $18,000 deposit back after the project was canceled. The homeowner then contacted a bunch of lawyers and said, hey, what do I do in this scenario? And the lawyer said, yeah, you're going to get your money back. So this family managed to get every penny back of that $18,000 deposit. You'd have to think there's probably a family or two out there that has gone through this kind of scenario and has not gotten all their money back. Here to chat about reno cancellations and bad renos in general is Bob Asidorian, a triple R, Inc., and the host of Just Ask Bob on Cable 14. Bobby, how are you? Very good, Rick. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. Do these kind of reno cancellations happen often?
6: Not that often. I mean, usually, I mean, I I must say that these homeowners are very, very lucky because the key, I think, is nearly, was nearly disastrous. They're lucky this didn't move ahead, and they're actually very lucky they received their deposit back. Uh, Can you imagine now if for some reason this contractor, instead of disclosing in the beginning that he wanted this extra $54,000, which I don't understand, I don't agree why he wouldn't acknowledge where the money was going. He just seemed to pull the number out of a hat. If the job had gone forward, he would try to find this money in other ways. This could have really, really been a disaster for the people. You know, my heart goes out to the family, but it's not a good situation, never is. They are so, so lucky. I can't stress this enough that this project didn't move ahead, or it would have just been a nightmare from the beginning, middle, right to the end.
0: Not only is there a cost factor here, and of course, this family did receive its deposit back, which is good news, but they've also lost time as well. And now they have to go out and find somebody else. But
6: from what I read, from what I understand, I believe the permits are applied for. So that's at least a bonus that's applied for. I mean, the time, the time they'll never get back. Now they have to start over, but at least with experience. You know, this process, you know, good or bad in life, you learn from it. So they did gain a lot of experience from the time they spent. You know, must have been numerous meetings, interactions, writing up the paperwork, going over everything. I would recommend now they use this experience. And, again, moving forward with contractors, it's difficult. You know, one thing is personality. It's so very important that you get along with the contractor. Try to use, you know, go with your gut. Try to find out if there's ways that you can really read into the contractor, read into them. Obviously, there's also the, you know, the the foolproof methods, licensing, insurance. Obviously, for a job this large, there would have been permits applied. So I'm assuming this fellow was fully licensed and insured. But another key is references. Ask for a a long list. You know, two or three doesn't cut it. Try to find at least a dozen references, people that this prospective contractor has gone through the process with, applied for the permits, built the additions. Again, a lot of money here. It's a big project. Talk to these people and ask them about their, you know, their true experience from the beginning to the end. How was the process? Were there any hidden costs? What was the end uh, The end? final project? Was it completed on time, on budget? Was it to the people's satisfaction? Again, use this negative experience as a plus as they move forward.
0: A lot of people have done home renos over the pandemic. You know, they were stuck in their homes or looking around thinking, hey, I want to change this, that, and the other thing. What's the most common red flag when you're dealing or hiring a contractor?
6: Typically, when they're pressuring you to start to, to, to sign, they're pressuring you to commit. No, that that's not right. You can't pressure people. This is a lot of money, you know, even smaller jobs. It doesn't matter. When the contractor seems to want to start immediately, that's a bit of a red flag. And and it's funny, homeowners, you know, we go through this, especially myself during the pandemic. An example, if I can give to your listeners, Rick, is one that's, you know, it's funny. People call in and they want a basement rental. That's typically, you know, one of the largest projects you can do with the exception of an addition. So I happen to be speaking to them on a Monday or Tuesday and they're asking me, you know, it's like a burning impulse in them. They're asking me if I can start next week. And, and I laugh and I tell them I'm a legitimate licensed contractor. It could be weeks until we've even gotten to the point where I have a proper quotation for you. And, you know, I can see they're getting saddened by this. And I tell them, look, if you're speaking to other contractors, they're not going to be as nice as I am. If they see that you want to start that quickly, they may jump the gun on you and literally jump the gun. You know, for contractors ready to start such a project, you know, within days, you know, he or she may just be sitting at home playing video games. They may not really be a legitimate, proper contractor. The good trades, the good contractors, they're typically booked months ahead, especially this time now with the pandemic, when everybody's, you know, trapped at home in some cases and they want everything done. At least in my case and many others I've spoken to, this is the busiest year and a half that I've had in nineteen years of being in business. So big red flag is when the contractor's ready to just jump in and start next week. There's something not right about that.
0: Yeah, that's a good tip. Bob we gotta leave it there. We're out of time, but thanks for joining us this morning.
6: Well thank you Rick and again congratulations if I may say on being the new morning host there uh, At 900-CHML.
0: Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Bob. Bob Asadorian, uh, the uh, owner-operator of Triple R, Inc., and the host of Just Ask Bob on Cable 14.
1: How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900-CHML.
0: Last week, the Toronto Argonauts celebrated the 30th anniversary of their 1991 Grey Cup-winning club. Big part of that club was Rockin' Ismail. And he's the focus of a new book that um, has CFL fans from coast to coast buzzing about it. It's called Year of the Rocket, John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, a Crooked Tycoon, and the Craziest Season in Football History. And we're chatting with the author of that book. He's a veteran journalist, a Canadian football historian, and his name is Paul Woods. Paul, good morning. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Rick. Nice to be here. How in the world did Rocket Ismail end up in the CFL?
7: Yeah, it's, it's a crazy story and it's still hard to believe even 30 years later. Uh, the team had been bought, the Argonauts had been bought by Bruce McNall, Wayne Gretzky and John Candy uh, in early 1991, uh, setting, a, setting a lot of buzz even on just from that. And McNall, who, of course, at that time owned the Los Angeles Kings and had brought Gretzky down to Southern Southern California, uh, he told his executives, uh, think big. And one of them was Mike McCarthy, who's, who, of course, lives in in the, uh, the CHML uh, uh, listening area and was the general manager of the Argonauts at the time. And Mike had watched, uh, as all general managers do, he had watched the... Uh, the various bowl games on new year's day that year he'd seen rocket almost win the game for notre dame with an amazing kick return in the last minute of the game uh and he followed his career and rocket was was a huge star in college football and so mccarthy put rocket's name on the argos negotiation list never thinking it was really going to happen but uh, he told uh, one of the king's executives uh, who told McNall, who loved the idea Uh, And McNall went public with it, went on a leaf Los Angeles Kings broadcast and said, we're trying to sign Rocket Ismail. And that started people buzzing and chattering about it. And before long, they were into serious negotiations. And uh, amazingly, they got him, although it cost them more money than any player had ever been paid to play football on either side of the border.
0: And really that, at the end of the day, got the job done because that sort of thing today mathematically, it just would not work. The NFL is such a behemoth now compared to even 30 years ago that a CFL team would not be able to compete with an NFL club in terms of a contract of that nature. Uh, At the end of the day, Bruce McNall got the job done with his pocketbook.
7: Absolutely. I mean, they paid Rocket uh, what amounted to four and a half million dollars a year. It was, it was supposed to be a four year contract for 18 million. He ended up only staying two of the four years, but he got his four and a half million dollars up front both of those seasons. Uh, and the, the team salary cap, the entire team was making three million dollars combined <laughs> and Rocket was making four and a half on top of that.
0: How did the other CFL owners react to Ismail's landing in Toronto?
7: Uh, you know, it was a combination, uh, Rick. They were uh, many of them were incredibly excited by the buzz that it brought to Canadian football. And you know, you've got to remember, the day that Rockets signed, it was the day of the NFL draft. They completely stole the thunder of the NFL draft. He was supposed to be the first pick in the draft. And instead, ESPN opened its coverage by announcing that our biggest star has flown north. Uh, And then the next day, front page news in the New York Times and USA Today. Uh, So they loved the fact that there was all this publicity flowing to the Canadian Football League. But some of them were worried about what the impacts would be on the salary structure of the league.
0: I believe Dallas had the first pick and they took Russell Maryland first overall, who who turned out to be an incredible player. But Rocket was probably going to go first overall to Dallas, I would think.
7: Yeah. They had written initially the pick had been owned by the new England Patriots. We think of the Patriots as this powerhouse, but in 1990 they were the worst team in the NFL and they owned the number one pick rocket actually sat down for some interviews with the Patriots when they owned that pick in one of those meetings, uh, an executive from the Patriots made a remark that that rocket construed as racist and he, and that really heated up discussions with the Argonauts. So the Patriots eventually traded the pick to the Cowboys and yes, they 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 talked to Rockets agents, and uh, at one point, uh, Jerry Jones was called by Rockets people and said, "Okay, can you match what the Argos are going to pay?" And Jerry Jones said, "No." And that, So then they picked pick Russell,
0: Maryland from there. Wow. We're chatting with Paul Woods, Canadian football historian and author of the new book, Year of the Rocket, John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, a Crooked Tycoon in the Craziest Season in Football History. Um, we talked about Bruce McNall, John Candy and Wayne Gretzky, I mean, two of the most popular people on the planet at that point in time, and all three of them owning the Argos. What a time.
7: Yeah, there's no question. I mean, you know, having those two guys in particular, I mean, McNaught was sort of this, 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 at the time everybody thought he was a a guy with a Midas touch. He brought hockey to, he brought Gretzky to Southern California and turned the Southern U S on to hockey for the first time. Uh, But having candy, the, one of the biggest movie stars on the planet, as you say, and Gretzky, the greatest hockey player of all time. Those two guys, I say, are probably maybe the two most famous Canadians of all time. And to have them both as part of the ownership, what a, what a triumvirate. Uh, and then, of course, they added Rocket. And, of course, they had a really good team. They already had Matt Dunnigan and Pinball Clemens and Daryl K. Smith and loads of stars on the defense. They were close to the Grey Cup the year before, even without the Rocket and without Gretzky, McNall,
0: and Candy. Got a minute left. What do you think is the Rockets' legacy? Oh,
7: that's a great question, Rick. I mean, you know, it's 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 a, it's an interesting story and anybody that reads the book will see that as as good as he was on the field and he's going to go down in history, I guess primarily because he scored that amazing kickoff return touchdown in the gray cup that basically won the game for the Argonauts. They were already up by one point, but that put them up by eight in the fourth quarter and they never got uh, challenged after that. And of course there was the beer can that came out of the stands, the frozen beer can that almost hit him. Uh, so on the field, his legacy was as a superb player, but off the field, he was not cut out for the job they needed him to, to perform, which was to be the Wayne Gretzky of the Argonauts, to be the, guy, the front man, the guy in front of all the cameras, all the time he was a shy young man did not want to do that stuff and so sadly after the magical year of 91 things went went all wrong in 92 and by the end of 92 they were desperate to get away from rocket and rocket was desperate to get away from them
0: (laughs) it's a great story and if you're a cfl fan especially an argos fan you want to pick this up year of the rocket uh paul thanks for the time today good luck with the book
7: well, thank you so much for having me, Rick. It was a it was a pleasure to venture into the Tiger Tycat's uh, lair today, especially <laughs> today after yesterday's yes, game. Yes,
0: I know it hurts. It still hurts, Paul. Thanks for the time.
7: Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye.
0: Paul Woods, Canadian football historian, veteran journalist, and author of Year of the Rocket. Sounds like a great read. Can't wait to flip through those pages and uh, get back into that time machine. What a year that was, 1991.
1: Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900-CHML.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.